This session's uh, third session is called Mana, Bread from Heaven. Israel was commanded to set aside a portion of mana as a reminder for future generations. We will reflect upon the episode of the mana and the lessons it has to teach us about our relationship to food and its implications for our connection to the divine and to humanity. Um, I see that Rabbi Silver is here. So without further ado, I hand it over to you, Rabbi Silver. Thank you. The purpose here is to uh, look at a couple of passages, mostly from the Torah, and to uh, suggest that the Torah is pointing us in certain directions when it comes to food, how to think about food generally, and that if we think about food a certain way, clearly, I think, on the level of practice, in a practical way, it probably will affect how we see food and therefore affect how we behave uh, in connection to food as well. Before I look at the passages that deal with the man, which essentially in the Torah three, there's one long story in the book of Shemot, chapter 16. There's uh, chapter 11 of Bamidbar, long chapter there, where again, the man figures very prominently. Then there are a couple of passages in, uh, in, in the book of Devarim. That's where we encounter the story of the Mon. I think it's fair to say that the Mon plays a, a very important role in the narrative in terms of Israel's leaving Egypt, the journey through the desert. The Mon figures prominently in the story. That itself is interesting. Before I get to the Mon though, I want to pick up on one of the texts that Rabbi Richmond had uh, spoken about, if you still have her notes, her, her, those who were there who, who were in that uh, session, uh, she pointed us towards uh, uh, verses in, um, in the book of, uh, Devarim, book of Devarim, which also are on my, my, uh, my handout as well. And that is the text in chapter 12 of the book of Devarim. There it talks about just chapter 12 in verse number 20, in verse number 20, Ki achiv Hashem lohechad k'vucha kashet diberlach, v'yarmata ochla basar, ki taved nafshecha lechol basar, v'cholavat nafshecha tochal basar. So the Torah says that when you, when God enlarges your boundaries, and you will say, I want to eat meat. The, the words of the Torah, again, the same word, means desire. Ta'ava is desire. You want to eat meat, says the Torah, you are permitted to eat meat as you desire, as you wish. And then the Torah continues, if the place that God has chosen to place God's name there, that means the temple. The Torah never says where that temple is. And the Torah never says in any event, but there's a chosen place. That place is far away. When you come into the land, the place is far away. So the Torah says, you may slaughter from your flock, cattle or sheep, 
as I have commanded you. And the question is, what does it mean as I have commanded you? So here we have on those two words, kasher tzibitecha, a dispute between Rashi on one hand and Nachmanides, the Ramban on the other. It's a very fundamental disagreement. So before we get to the Mon, which I believe is very much related to this, I want to spell out what Rashi and what the Ramban is saying, in particular the Ramban. What does it mean you may slaughter animals and eat them as I have commanded you? So Rashi says, as I have commanded you, says Rashi, Baal Peh. It never says in the Torah, the rules of, of slaughtering are not found in the Torah. It says nothing about how one slaughters the animals in the Torah. So what does it mean I have, as I have commanded you? As I've commanded you sounds like it refers to some earlier command. But in point of fact, there is no earlier command where the Torah lays out the rules of Shechita. So Rashi says, I commanded you, it's not written down, but there's an oral tradition. We have traditions about the way one slaughters meat. Says Rashi, you can slaughter this animal, eat the animal in your own precincts, that's what Rashi says. So the Ramban doesn't like it at all. And it takes us back to a very fundamental question about how to read this passage and how to read a different passage. And what, this, what the argument centers around, since Rabbi Richmond mentioned this text, and I intended to mention it as well, what it centers around is a different passage, not in any handouts, but a passage in chapter 17 of the previous book of Ayikra. And there's a great dispute there between Rashi and the Ramban. And in fact, the same dispute is found in the Talmud between Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva, same dispute. How to read these few verses in the beginning of chapter 17. There it says that any one of Israel, Ish Ish, it's chapter 17 of Ayikra, Verse number three, any one of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb inside the camp or outside the camp. We're talking about traveling in the desert and there's a camp, there's a range, a camp that's arranged. The Torah lays out in the book of Bamidbar how the camp is arranged. So anyone who slaughters an animal either inside the camp or outside the camp, but didn't bring this animal as a sacrifice, slaughtered the animal outside of the temple, outside of the Mishkan, which is the temple. Such a person, says the Torah, that person is guilty of shedding blood and is cut off from his, from his people. What is that talking about? So Rashi interprets these verses. We're talking about somebody who set aside an animal for a sacrifice. But after the animal was set aside for the sacrifice, did not slaughter the sacrifice inside the temple, inside the Mishkan, but slaughtered the animal outside the Mishkan. What is known in rabbinic parlance in the Talmud as shchut echutz, sacrificing the animal, in this case, slaughtering the animal, or any of the other uh, things that one does in the ritual performance of sacrifice, cast, sprinkling the blood, but didn't do it inside the temple, did it outside the temple. 
That is, that's a serious violation. And that's what the Torah speaks about. That's Rashi and Rabbi Akiva in the Talmud says the same thing. So Rashi essentially quotes Rabbi Akiva. The Ramban doesn't like it. The Ramban says that is the view of Rabbi Akiva. And generally we follow Rabbi Akiva when he disputes with others. The Talmud says we generally follow Rabbi Akiva. If it's another person against Rabbi Akiva, if it's the majority against it, we don't follow him. But Rabbi Akiva if it's one against one, we follow Rabbi Akiva. Says the Ramban, that's not in terms of reading the Torah though. In terms of what we would call Pshat, we don't necessarily follow Rabbi Akiva. We follow what appears to us to be the most reasonable interpretation. And therefore, therefore the Ramban says, that's not what the Torah is talking about. What the Torah is talking about is something else. That when you're in the desert and you want to eat a piece of meat, you're not allowed to eat the meat unless you bring it as a sacrifice. That's how he reads the verses. That's why it says a person who wants to eat meat inside the camp or outside the camp. Because you might have thought, if I'm far away from the camp, I went on a, a, a hike. I'm 50 miles from the camp. I'm walking around the desert. And I want to eat a piece of meat. Well, I'm going to walk 50 miles to the temple? Says the Torah, yes. You're not allowed in the desert. You were not permitted to eat meat unless you brought it as a sacrifice. So that's Vayikra, chapter 17. Now in, chap in Devarim, chapter 12, the Torah says, what happens when you come into the land? This is the critical point. And the critical words is, Ki when God enlarges your boundaries. Or it says here as well, Ki when the place is far away. When the place is far away, so what? I'm living in Haifa. Every time I want to eat a piece of a steak, I have to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple? That's not realistic. So the Torah says, okay, if in fact, once you have the set place in the desert, the Mishkan is in the center of the camp. Everybody lives in close proximity to the temple. When you come into the land and set up an assigned place, a chosen place, many people are far from the place. The place is not by definition close to anybody. One might say it's far from everybody. It's not near any particular place. It's its own place. Then the Torah has a dispensation, says the Ramban. And what is the dispensation? The dispensation is you are now permitted to eat meat, although it's not a sacrifice, but, and here's the but, and this is what the Ramban is getting at. As I have commanded you. So the Ramban explains, beautiful interpretation, which is, as I commanded you vis-a-vis -vis sacrifices. In other words, for the Ramban, you're permitted to eat meat, which is not a sacrifice. However, that's only if, that's only if, I only allow it, says the Torah, if you perform the ritual that you did in terms of sacrifice. And what is that ritual? It's called shechita. Kashet as I have, have spoken to you earlier in the book of Ayikra, it talks about Fishachat ben Abakar. It often speaks about the slaughter of sacrifices. So the Ramban says that's what it means over here. And I would add to the Ramban, actually. I think this is the plain meaning of the text, personally. I think this 
clearly what the Torah is getting at. But actually, I would add to what the Ramban says, and maybe he had this in mind, because a couple of verses later, which is verse number 23, the Torah, first the Torah says in verse 22, you may eat this animal as the gazelle and the heart is eaten, means even animals that are not kosher for sacrifices. Once we permit you to eat sacrificial animals, we permit you to eat all animals that you slaughter. Hatameva hatahar, that refers to the person, the clean, the ritually pure person and ritually impure person, which is not true of the regular sacrifices. The regular sacrifice is only partaken by the one who's tahar. But when it comes to eating in your own precincts, even a person that's tame, it's another dispensation. However, and this is verse 23, rachazak, steal yourself, be steadfast, but you may not eat the blood, for the blood is life. In other words, that's a further connection to the sacrificial rite. In the sacrificial rite, one of, one of, if not the critical act of sacrifice, is the sprinkling of the blood. The blood is sprinkled on the altar. When you come into the land, and the temple is by definition far away, you are permitted to eat meat, but, but only if you perform the ritual of slaughter, which is a sacrificial ritual. And when it comes to the blood, if the blood is not sprinkled on the altar, because there is no altar, in fact, the Torah forbids altars when you come into the land at some point when you have the chosen place, but you can't eat the blood. You must throw it on, on the ground, like water. And in verse 26, only kodoshecha, only sacrifices, you, the actual sacrifice, you set aside for a sacrifice, then you take the journey to the place which God has chosen. Now, the reason I mention this is because this is something to, very interesting to think about and is so far from our consciousness. I can't, you can't exaggerate how far this is from our consciousness. The idea that every slaughtering of an animal, shechita, we think of shechita today, we think of animals being slaughtered by the dozens, if not by the hundreds, a kind of mass production. But the way the Torah speaks about shechita, the shechita that's being performed on non-sacred animals is fundamentally, as the Ramban reads the Torah text, which I think is the plain reading of the text, clearly, the shechita is a shechita of, of sacrifices. Shechita of sacrifices, and when you're eating this animal, there's a dispensation here. But fundamentally, the idea that meat is eaten as a sacrifice still obtains with dispensations. And I'll come back to this point later about what the significance is of seeing the animal as a sacrifice. So in general, what does it mean? What is special about eating the animal as sacrifice? But before I get there, I'll come back to it. We look at the stories of the Mon, but I would make a general observation about this passage, which is that the passage that we've just seen in the book of Devarim chapter 12 uh, is of course in the book of Devarim. The book of Devarim in its totality 
is about what happens when you come into the land. The rest of the Torah, and most of the Torah actually, is not about being in the land at all. And neither is Devarim actually, we're not in the land in the book of Devarim, but it's one step removed from being in the land. And the book of Devarim lays out in very concrete terms, I think, what it means to be in your land. What it means to be in your land in the book of Devarim, which is to realize the dream. But when you realize the dream, the realization of the dream is never the same as the dream. The dream can be very pure and very special and very holy and everything and very perfect. Our dreams should be that way. We aspire for the highest. Then you deal with the realities of life. So the book of Devarim deals with many realities of life, which are unpleasant, but which deal with the reality of living in a land and the reality of, of, of human nature. The best example would be the story of the Yifat Torah. The Torah speaks about the captive woman that in, in a battle a man desires, the Choshak desires this beautiful woman that he sees. Her husband may have been killed in battle and essentially kidnaps her. And the Torah doesn't like it, but the Torah under certain circumstances permits it. In the language of our tradition, Dibra Torah connected Yetzirahara. The Torah speak, the Torah doesn't want you to do it, but the Torah spoke about human reality, human passions, human drives, what happens in wars, when there's a permissibility to kill, other things fall by the wayside as well. The Torah is not opposed to the war, but the Torah realizes that war is problematic in terms of the effect it has on people. So over here, one can look at this Parsha, chapter 12 of Devarim, that we begin with, as another example of the Torah is accepting human nature. The Torah is dealing with reality. You don't have a Mishka next door. We can't tell you every time you want to eat a piece of meat, go to, go to the Mishkan. That's not realistic. So, okay, if you desire, and here the word ava is interesting. Tava, ava. Ava carries with it, I think, it means desire, but generally it figures negatively. In fact, in the book of Devarim, in the Ten Commandments, we know that in the book of Exodus, the ninth commandment is low, or tenth commandment, low tachmod, do not covet. Lachmod. But in the book of Devarim, in the ten commandments, in the version in the book of Devarim, lo So the idea of desire carries with it something problematic. The Torah permits it, but we shouldn't necessarily, from the passages in the book of Devarim, presume the Torah encourages it. Sacrifice is a different story. Sacrifice, the Torah does the plain reading of the text. The Torah simply endorses it. That's for a different reason that will come to later on. This is all in a segue, as it were, to uh, what I want to uh, discuss briefly about the man. And we'll come to that now. But this is in this, the way the Book of Devarim, at least, presents the permissibility, permissibility of eating meat that is not sacrificed is very important, again, to repeat, the critical question in reading that text is, as I have commanded you, 
Rashi and the Ramban, which takes us back to the way one reads chapter 17 of the book of Ayikra. I'll stop for a moment at this point before we start with our first text of the Mon, which is the story of the Mon in the book of Exodus chapter 16. But before that, if anybody has a comment or question, I'll be happy to hear. Okay, if, this, if, I, if you do chat. have questions, you can send them in the chat and Sarah will tell me what they are or just unmute yourself and speak up. Okay, so let's start now with chapter 16 of the book of Shemot. So the story is that Israel has left Egypt. We've crossed the uh, Sea of Reeds, Yamsuf. We've sung the Song of the Sea in chapter 15. And now we come to chapter 16. Uh, and chapter 16 begins with Israel's journey in the desert. Here's where the journey begins. And uh, so in the end of chapter 15, if you remember, as soon as we cross the, 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 the sea, and the Torah says that we came to a place called Marah, and we, 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 we couldn't find water. We, there was no water. First thing that happens after we cross through the waters is we come to a place where there's no water. And what does Israel do when they come to a place of no water? They complain. Because they came to Marah, which means bitterness, but the waters of Marah are Marah, are bitter. So the people complain. And Moshe, uh, the people complain against Moshe. It's not in the handout. Moses turns to God, and God teaches Moshe how to sweeten the waters. That's the end of chapter 15. That's the story of Marah. Very important story. Not our topic directly this, this afternoon. And now Israel keeps traveling. They travel from a place called Elim, and they go into the wilderness of Sin, Midbar Sin, in the 15th day of the second month, after they left the land of Egypt, sort of midway point between the receiving of the Torah and leaving Egypt. And the Torah says in verse number two, the entire congregation complained. So we have two consecutive stories of complaint. Doesn't take long. Across the sea, one complaint about water, second complaint. And the complaint here is, in verse number three, The complaint is, is sort of nasty we would have been better off dying by the hand of God in Egypt, probably the, the plague of the firstborn or whatever, or the other nine plagues. Better to die in Egypt, at least in Egypt, we had sir habasar, the pot of meat, and our fill of bread, lechem rosova. You have brought us into the desert to kill the entire congregation through, through, through starvation. That's the complaint that's leveled once again Against, against Moshe and Aaron, Moses and Aaron, are the objects of the people's complaint. And here, 
what's very interesting is that the Torah doesn't say that Moshe went to God with a complaint. Uh, you would expect the Torah to say that. In the previous story of the waters, the bitter waters, Moshe cries out to God. People complained against Moshe. Moshe cries to God. God teaches Moshe how to sweeten the waters. But over here, strikingly, we have God speaking to Moshe. It's not clear that God is responding. It functions as a response, but it's not presented that way, that Moshe addressed God and God responds, but rather God speaks to Moshe. And this is the, our central verse for our study. Verse number four. I will rain down, says God, bread from heaven. Says God, I'll rain down bread from heaven. Rechem can be, we think of Rechem as bread. Actually, in biblical Hebrew, lechem is that which sustains you. It's not necessarily only bread. Perhaps here it is bread, but sustaining food. And the people will go out and collect it every day. And then God adds, in order that anasenu, here they translate, prove them. Anisayon is a test. Test them, prove them. Will they follow my Torah or not? So the purpose of the, the food, which is daily food, bread from heaven, mon, it's going to be called mon. The purpose is, that's verse number four. And in verse number five, we have an additional point that on the sixth day, so on the sixth day, they are to prepare food for the next day. They're going to get a Mishnah, a double portion. Twice as much bread will come on the sixth day as they normally get. Yom Yom. So they block two divide Yom Biyomo, but on the sixth day, a double portion, Yom Yom. That's what God says to Moshe. So it sounds like, actually, whether God is responding directly, to, it is a response to the people in effect. But whether God responds to the people directly or not, in effect, what God is saying is, there's going to be food, and the food is called the lechem in Hashemayim. Very important term, bread from heaven. And there are two points over here. The first of which is, that through this bread, which I'm providing to the people, says God, which they will collect every day, it is a test. If they will follow my Torah or not. And now the question is, what is the test? The people weren't thinking about a test in verse number three. They fondly remember the land of Egypt flesh pots of food, bread that fills you up. That's hardly Raman Anasenu. So what is Raman Anasenu? What does it mean that in the, in the way that they will get their food, 
this will serve, says God, as a test whether they keep my Torah or not. Before I address this question in verse number four, I would simply point out that this verb, l'nasot, to test, is a verb that appears in several consecutive stories in the book of Exodus. It appears here, which is our concern. It actually even appeared in the previous story about the bitter waters. Marah, the place of bitter waters. And there it says, God taught Moshe how to sweeten the waters. And in Marah, the end of chapter 15, Sham Samro Choku Mishpat, their God gave the people statues and ordinances, Visham Nisahu, and their God proved or tested them. So the previous story in the complaint about water. The Torah contextualizes it as nisayon, a test. And now over here, the manner in which the food is, food is to be procured, the food from heaven is a nisayon, is a test. What is the test? What does it mean to, to be tested? We know that in the book of Breshit, there was a test. The Torah says God tested Abraham. Elohim nisat Abraham. The binding of Isaac is a test. What is the test over here? So once again, we come to the two heroes of the afternoon, Rashi and the Ramban. And of course, Rashi and the Ramban have two very different ways to understand the test of the mud. For Rashi, and Rashi is consistent throughout his entire commentary on the Torah, Rashi's focus in his commentary on the Torah is the, is the observance of God's commandments. That's how Rashi starts his commentary on the Torah. Why does the Torah start with Genesis, says Rashi? It should have started with the first commandment. Rashi sees the Torah as a, as a set of commandments. So I will test them if they keep my Torah or not, says Rashi. Well, there are gonna be rules and regulations about this food. One of the regulations is hinted at in the next verse, that on the sixth day, they get a double portion. Why did they get double portion on the sixth day? Because on the seventh day, you're not allowed to collect the food because it's Shabbat. You don't work on Shabbat. That's part of the test. Let's see if they observe that. Then there's another test about the food that's not spelled out in verse number four, but it's spelled out a little later in the chapter. And that is, you can't actually, actually I hinted out, you collect the food every day. Every day means you can't save it from one day to the next. Every single day you collect the food for that day. So the prohibition to leave it over is the word that will come to is to leave over. You're not permitted to leave it over. So those are the two mitzvot, one might say, or prohibitions related to the month. And let's see if they fulfill them or not. I'm going to give them food in such a way they'll get food, but the food entails obligation. They're not sitting in a big flesh pot of, of meat they can eat the next month. No, the food only exists for a day, except the food you collect on the sixth day. Then it keeps for the seventh day, but that's because on the seventh day, you can't collect. That's Rashi's understanding of Guman Anasenu. That's the test. 
So the man is educational. And that Rashi and the Ramban both agree to. That's clear from what it says in this chapter. The man is educational. But the question is, what kind of education does the Torah want you to receive? Says Rashi, it's about the commandments, observance of the commandments, that's Rashi. The Ramban has a different point of view. He was not opposed to observing commandments, but he had a different understanding of the word Nisayon here and Nisayon in the previous story. The Nisayon for the Ramban is not about specific commandments. It's about an approach to life. And for the Ramban, it's how to live in the previous story, the story of the bitter waters. Because we learn lessons usually not from our successes. We learn lessons from the difficulties of life. How do you, how do you live in the desert? How do you live in a place where you are not sure where your next meal is coming from? I mean, you've been told over here it's coming tomorrow, but you have you are completely dependent upon the bread from heaven. You're in a desert. How do you live in a desert where there's no water? How do you live in a desert where the temperature can be very hot in the daytime and freezing at night? How do you deal with the elements? How do you deal with the fact that you're not exactly sure where you're gonna to be tomorrow? Says the Ramban, that's what Nisayon means. Sham sam rochoku mishpat v'sham nisahu so the Ramban argues, once again, I find it convincing that Roman Anasenu means not the specific mitzvot necessarily, but to ingrain in them a certain way of seeing things. Now for the Ramban, in his great commentary on the Torah, one of the main emphases in the Ramban is faith. The Ramban is very, faith is very central for the Ramban. So the purpose of the man is to ingrain in us a sense of faith coming with a sense of dependency. Because you don't know that tomorrow you'll have bread. Because you only collect with today, you can't save it. You can't store it. In fact, it will spoil, we'll find out. If you try to store it, it doesn't work. So that's Laban Anasenu, but the point of Rashi and the Ramban, they agree about this that the giving of the bread, the way we eat in the desert for all these years, the idea is to teach us something about life, about living, about values, about a connection to God, etc. And it is interesting to note, and after this point, I'll again stop if people want to comment, that we have something at the end of chapter 16. At the end of chapter 16, we are told, very end, chapter 16, we are told Moshe is commanded or commands Aaron, uh, verse number 32, by Yom Moshe, Moshe said, this is what God has commanded. Fill up an omerful to be kept for future generations. For what purpose? I wanted to see the bread that I fed them in the desert. That's God's command. And then Moshe commands his brother Aaron in the very next verse to take an omer and to put it inside some kind of container 
uh, a jar, a container, tzinsenet, put the omer inside there, place it before God, the next verse as well, Aaron did as he was commanded, as God had commanded Moshe, and Aaron placed it before the congregation, the word mishmeret appears three times. Mishmeret is a very interesting word. It's something that is there for safekeeping, something you are shomer, something you guard. You guard things that are important. But mishmeret also has another meaning, which is the word shomar has actually another, another meaning in biblical Hebrew. We know that in the Ten Commandments, in the first set of Ten Commandments, it says Zohar. In the second set of commandments, it says Shamar. Zohar v'shamar b'dibur echad, the Gemara says, But actually, the word Shamar, l'shmar, the word l'shmar means to remember. But the word l'shmar also means to remember. Remember the story of Joseph? When he had his dreams, the brothers were jealous of Joseph or hated him. But his father kept it in mind. His father remembered it. So Shamar and Zachar are actually synonyms. They actually mean the same thing. Some of you remember. In other words, make a long story short, at the end of this long chapter in the book of Exodus, I would say perhaps the central chapter, it's right in the middle of the book. We're told about the Mon, 35, 35 verses. 36 verses. It's one of the longer chapters in the book, but we're told something else, that we are commanded to remember the story of the man. In verse number 35, the children of Israel ate the man for 40 years until they came to a settled land, Eretz Noshavet, inhabited land. They ate the man until they came to the boundaries of the land of Canaan. So we are commanded actually to remember the story. Not just commanded, we're commanded to set aside a part of the man, an omer, that was the measure. That's how much man they collected every day to remind us about this experience. So obviously the Torah feels that the experience of the man has a lot to teach us. And the question is what exactly the man has to teach us or maybe a couple of things the man has to teach us I'm not suggesting that this is a full story, but I did want to point us in a couple of directions that I think are central to the story of the Ma'an, demonstrate how the Torah plays it out. Okay, so let me stop here for a moment, and I'll have you take some comments or questions before we continue. I have a, a general question, not yep. really a comment, but I'm curious about your perspective. I've been fascinated reading you know, the background of Rashi grew up on the vineyard and Maimonides who grew up in Spain and all of that. And I'm just wondering how much do you think that their upbringing or, I mean, Rashi was a winemaker, influenced their, their thought process. I mean, would they have written what they've written in a different way in another time? Would you think that they're of their, their time in terms of their perspective on, on their writings? Well, my, first of all, I, I'm not sure Rashi, everybody in medieval, uh, Europe at that time drank wine. They didn't drink water for the most part. Water probably was not safe to drink. And wine was the basic drink. Wine was a combination of water and also alcohol. Wine was, you drank at parties and wine is what they drank. But 
the, the, I would say the following. Everybody's experience affects what they say and how they think. The idea that their experience in life doesn't shape to a large measure what they think, to me, that's intuitively wrong. If Rashi had lived in a different time, if the Ramam had lived in a different time, uh, if he had grown up differently, a different set of teachers, of course, they, the people that we study with, the experience in life, all that, that is subjective, has enormous impact on how we see the world, how we understand our, our tradition and everything else. So, of course, the Rambam moved from Spain to actually moved to Israel for a while, then he moves to Egypt. He's a doctor and deals with the Egyptian royalty. Uh, so, of course, those things have to affect the way you see the world. He comes into contact with philosophy. Rashi did not know anything about Aristotle and Plato. Rambam does. So they're completely different. And of course, generally speaking, I think every, everybody's affected by their environment by the same token. I don't think we have to assume that that means people can't speak to each other. I think we can talk to each other. And I think that's important. But we do understand that our thinking is shaped to some extent by what we see in the world. I don't think when it comes to these great interpreters, what the Rashi or the Rambam or the Rabban or whatever, it's important to remember that there's always a subjective element and there's also a sense of right and wrong that is part of the way we, what we see in the world. But there is also, I think this is an important point. There is an, object, an objective text they're looking at. So there's something that, that there's something there, something objective that different people approach differently, but they're sharing a common text. They're sharing a common Torah. They're trying to understand it, whether it's Rashi or the Ramban, who couldn't be more different from each other, but they can still, as it were, converse with each other. I don't mean literally, they live at different times, but they are in a way talking to each other over time. So I think that's an important point. But of course, I totally accept the idea that our own personal experience, subjective experiences, colors the way we see text, the way we see the world, of course. But you know, I, on the other hand, it's very hard to know the other person's experience. We know that Rambam had to move from place to place. We know that. Um, but again, to actually understand someone who lived a thousand years ago or, or more in a completely different world, the idea that we can fully understand that person's experience we can understand the person's experience that we're talking to because we're coming from different places. And we certainly can fully understand the experience of someone who lives in another world. It's another world. Medieval, medieval France. I mean, what is, we have no idea what that means. We have no clue, actually. Who lives, actually lives amongst, amongst pogroms. I mean, what does that mean? Has it affect the way you see the world? Has to affect it. So of course, so the idea that we can actually explain the interpretation based on the person's experience, to me that has its severe limits. And I question that entire approach that if we can just figure out where they lived and around what century they lived in, we can, we can uh, hypothesize with any degree of certainty what they're saying personally I think that's absurd. That's my view. By the same token, you can learn certain things from people's experience as we know them, but we can't fully understand uh, 
people that live a long time ago. In any event, yeah, someone asked about, I'm making the assumption that people consume wine more than water. That's not my, uh, that's, that's not my research. That's what I've read from scholars who have researched it. Wine was a common drink. Wine was considered safer for the most part than water. So the name Rashi spent all his time in a vineyard, I don't think is accurate. Rashi spent most of his time, I presume, in the study of Torah. It's clear from the voluminous output of Rashi and the mind-boggling uh, knowledge this man has. So he spent a lot of time, probably the great majority of his time studying. Okay, anybody else want to comment about this Mun story over here? Or anything else that's connected? If not, I will continue. Okay, so let's continue now. We're still in chapter 16. And so again, so God says to, Mo, to uh, God instructs Moshe that I'm going to rain down bread from heaven, lechem in hashamayim. And now Moshe and Aaron speak to the people. Here we come to verses number six and verse number seven and verse number eight. And these verses, verse number six is Moshe and Aaron together because the complaint was against Moshe and Aaron, say the following, Erev, tonight you will know, Fidatem, ki Hashem hotzi etchem eyaretz Mitzrayim. You, you understand tonight, you will come to know that it is God that took you out of Egypt. Uh, and um, we're missing some verses here. Oh, no, verse, they've out of order. Verse number seven, Uboker in the morning, in the morning, you will see the literally the glory of God, the presence of God. God has heard your complaints. What are we that you complain against us? Me and Aaron. You're addressing your complaints to the wrong parties. It's not about me and Aaron. We don't provide anything. But Moshe repeats in verse 8, by Yom Moshe, so it's not about us, says Moshe. God is the one that's going to provide food. Meat at night, bread in the morning. It's God that hears your cries. It's not about us. And Moshe says, tell the people to stand, before, approach God who has heard your complaints. And in verse number 10, they turned to, towards the desert and the glory of God appeared in a, in, a, in, a, in a cloud. So here, here there's a critical point, I think, in terms of the mud. Because what Moshe is saying is that you have to see that the food not as coming from us, You've complained against Aaron and myself as if we are the ones who are going to provide you with food. We don't provide you with food. At best, we give you instructions that God has instructed us. But we are not the ones to, who provide the food. The food comes from God, comes from God. And here Moshe says something very interesting about this food. The food is a form of revelation. Kvod Hashem, in this chapter and elsewhere, the glory of God means the presence of God. 
as it says explicitly in verse number 10, Kavod Hashem the glory, the presence of God appears in a cloud. Often the presence of God appears in the cloud, the idea being the human being can't fully grasp God's presence. So there's always something obscured. You can't fully see the presence. When the high priest enters the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, is the incense. The function of the incense is to obscure because you can't fully see God face to face. We see glimpses of God. But the idea of seeing the food as coming from God, that's what this, these verses are all about. And I started off by addressing the, looking at the verses in the book of Devarim, which talk about meat. Meat, of course, in the Torah is not eaten every day. Come back to this in a minute over here. Meat is something you eat on the festivals. Meat is something special. And that's the idea of sacrifice. You don't bring sacrifices every day. There is a communal sacrifice every day, but individual people don't bring sacrifices every day to the temple for any number of reasons, one of which is they're expensive. And people aren't doing that. And people aren't expected to do it. During the festivals, you bring the sacrifice. And here, when it comes to sacrifice, here an expression that we encounter in the Talmud is very useful to understand what's going on here. The Talmud in Tractate Kedushin discusses the question, can a man betroth a woman by giving her sacrificial portions? In the Mishnah, Kedushin, the man gives the woman either money or something of value as a kind of symbolic act of sanctification, acquisition, perhaps sanctification. It's called Kedushin, Kedusha. So the Mishnah in Tractate Kedushin talks about what things are viable, what things can be used for Kedushin, what things may not be used for Kedushin. The Mishnah says in the second chapter of Kedushin, what if the man gives to the woman a priestly portion, a portion of the sacrifice? So the Gemara has an opinion, it doesn't work. Why not? Why doesn't it work? Says the Talmud, because the portion doesn't belong to the priest. Mishochan Gavoa from God's table, Kazahu. The priest gets it off God's table. It's not really the priest. The priest has rights in it. The priest is allowed to eat it, but it's not his food. It's Mishochan Gavoa. It's from God's table. And according to one view, this extends not just to the priestly portion, perhaps even to the portion of the one who brings the sacrifice, the non priest. That's a question. But the idea that that which is God's isn't really yours. You have use, you can eat it, you can consume it, but it doesn't mean that it's yours. And by analog, I'll give you another example in the Talmud, which comes up in several places. Uh, what is, it's the tithe, what's called Maser Shemi. The tithe that is taken, the first year of this tithing cycle, the second year, the fourth year, and the fifth year, as the Talmud understands the verses in the Torah. During these years, you tithe, tithe your produce and you bring it to the temple where you yourself eat it. And there's a dispute in the Talmud about this tithe. Is it considered your personal property, what they call mom and head yot, or is it God's property? That is to say, 
the fact that it has sanctity, sanctity and ownership are mutually exclusive. If it's sacred, it's God's. If it's God's, it's not fully yours. So over here, what's interesting is if you see food, and that's why I started with the, with the meat. If you see the meat fundamentally that we eat as rooted in sacrifice, that the act of slaughter, ritual slaughtering is the slaughtering of the sacrifice, that the discarding of the blood is akin to throwing the blood on the altar. And you read the verses over here, what Moshe is saying is, and what God says, I rain down bread from heaven. If we see food, actually, we don't see it this way, but if we see food as God's food, God's nourishment, then among other things, not only is it a way to connect to God, if we see this, and it's what the Torah says, I would say more than test or prove, I would say educate. Anisa Yon, a test in the Torah, is not just a test to give you, uh, to figure out whether you're going to do something. It's not just a test to give you a good grade, but a good test is one that you learn from. I think that's true of all the tests. It's educational. And sometimes you fail the test, but you also learn from the, from the, from the failing grade. In this particular case, as Rashi sees it, Israel fails the test. Don't leave over. Don't go out on Shabbat to collect. The Torah says in this chapter they did both. So they didn't do well on the test, but they learned from the test, hopefully. So if what the Torah invites us here to do, and the Torah says, remember the mud, the Torah invites us to see all food, not just meat, but all food as coming in a sense from God. All food is coming from God. And this accounts for something very central in our, in our tradition, which is the obligation, as the Talmud understands it, the biblical obligation after every meal to say Birkat HaMazon. It's remarkable. And the first blessing of Birkat HaMazon, actually, in our tradition, is quite astonishing. Because, you know, in the Jewish tradition, the, at least the, the liturgy that's been handed down over generations, the liturgy the Talmud speaks of, and has come down to us, the classical liturgy, for the most part, there are some exceptions. But for the most part, it's not, it's not universal. I think there's a critique here that it's not universal. But in fact, it's not universal, generally speaking. What is universal, actually, the most universal blessing we have is the first blessing of Birkat HaMazon. God sustains everything. Not just the humans, by the way, all created beings. To all of God's created beings, all of creation. Goes back to creation. God created not just the Jewish people, God creates the world. So the idea of seeing everything is coming in some sense from God, that is absolutely central to the story of the month. And the point here is, and here's the point I want to make, that the Torah at the end of this chapter tells us 
to set aside the mind. Moses is commanded to set aside the mind for future generations. And, and after we enter into the land, Eretz Noshevet, to the inhabited land, not a desert, but to inhabited land, to the land of Canaan, then the land that we will capture, the land in which we set up all of our institutions. The idea of the man is even after you set up your institutions, and that means you are a, a functioning society, you work the fields, all these laws about, about the fields, what you do with the crops, presumes you're in a place where you're growing crops, which is not the desert. But the point of the Torah is, even after you have a settled land and you are producing in this land, but you should never forget that in a certain sense, it comes from God because without God's assistance, without God's help, without our history, we wouldn't be here. And actually in Birkat HaMazon, that's the central idea. And what's interesting in terms of Birkat HaMazon is what the Talmud says, it's not found in the text of Birkat HaMazon, but what the Talmud says is part of important when one says Birkat HaMazon, when one thanks God, we also thank the hosts. We also, we also, uh, we also thank, if we eat someone's house, we thank that person because we understand it's not just, when you're thinking how, do, how, did, how did this food come to my plate? So we're grateful for the ability to eat. It's not a given. And we're grateful for the fact that we, many of us don't have to worry about where the next meal's coming from. But we also think about how we got where we are and we recognize that food comes from somewhere. There were many people in, in, in this chain of how food gets to us. There are many st steps along the way. And therefore, when we're in someone's house, we are obligated to thank the person in the house who put the food on our, on our plate. And th think about it much more broadly, is that idea of gratitude, the idea of, of the idea of reflecting on how we got what how we got what we got, how we are where we are. So the food then, from this perspective, serves as a kind of revelation. And before I get to the next point in this talk, I'll just stop for a moment. If people have questions or comments, I'll take them now. I wanted to go further in the time we have to try to build on this point. I believe Charles put something in the chat. Charles, would you like to unmute or reject me to read it for you? Yes, please read it. Sure. Um, he said, in what way were future generations to see the Man Omer? Was it kept in the ark? It says here, it's, it, it doesn't, it says, it, it's not clear. It says, place it before God. Lifnei Hashem is what it says at the end of the, it doesn't sound like it's actually in the ark itself, but it's very not clear. It's also not clear how this how this mon could actually exist for such a long time, but uh, you know, but the jar probably existed. But the idea of the idea of a of a um, the idea of a remembrance. By the way, it's interesting that this is not the only place in the Torah where we are commanded to uh, remember something. You have it, for example, in the book of Bamidbar. Two two other places that come to mind immediately about the necessity to remember things. Um, 
they both are in the context of the rebellion against Moses and Aaron in the uh, in the in the Korach story. The uh, the censors of those who brought the incense that were burnt up in the fire. They should be kept as a as a reminder. Aaron's staff, which sprouted almonds to demonstrate God's choosing of Aaron, should be kept as a reminder that no non-priest should enter to serve. Both of those are reminders in terms of the temple. Over here, it's also placed before God, so I presume it means the temple, which sort of, I, I think, strengthens the thought that what we're talking about over here in terms of the man is revelation. If revelation, it's a kind, it's related to, to, the, uh, to the temple. In other words, you have over here in chapter 16, a story about God's presence. God's presence, not at the sea. The sea was a miracle. The sea is a once in a lifetime event, a miracle passing through the waters, okay. But more important is seeing God in one's everyday life, or in the words of the Torah, yom yom. And what the man affords us the possibility of, of, of doing is seeing how God interacts in terms of our, of our, of our daily living remembering that you don't know where tomorrow's meal is coming from. What's it, the Lord's Prayer with Jesus or the Lord? Give us today our, our, our daily bread. So the Christians picked up on it, our daily bread, it's daily bread. What'll be tomorrow? Perhaps God will give us. Now, my point here is not that that's the way we live in the land when we come to the land. That's not my point because you don't live that way in the land, in the desert. This is the desert experience, but the, a piece of this desert experience that we keep with us. And the point I think in, when you come into the land, you actually possess the, the, you actually possess things when you're in the land. You have a piece of land, which you own, and maybe you have crops, and fields that you own, and you work in the fields. So the, the bread is in falling from heaven. But if you think of the bread that you have, of your possessions, as in some sense coming from God, then you deal with those possessions differently, and you deal with the other person differently. So it's like the one who brings the first fruits to the temple, and called Bikurim, and and has a declaration when the person brings the Bikurim to the temple in tw chapter 26 of Devarim, makes the declaration, my father was a wandering Aramean, we went down to Egypt, we suffered in Egypt, we cried out to God, and God delivered us from Egypt, and now I bring to God these, 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 these fruits. Now the person may have been living in the land for 500 years, but the one making that declaration is seeing history and his own experience as, 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 as seamless. I see myself as there, I see myself as in Egypt. So the point then is to see oneself, to take from my history, pieces of my history, and to be able to think about my experience, even though I do possess land over here. So I'm gonna give someone else what I possess because in some deep sense, I don't fully possess it. Because in some sense, if it's sacred, it can't be fully mine. And that obligates me to share. And that's the other piece of the bond that's very interesting. 
in terms of this particular chapter. So let me um, let me just continue with this thought. Thank you. Uh, continue with this thought, and I'll take more comments or questions. The idea of the man as a kind of revelation. The book of Exodus ends with, with, with the building of the temple. That's how the book ends. Since the book ends with the building of the temple, and the book of Exodus is a discrete book, what that has to mean is that, in some sense, the purpose of leaving the land of Egypt was to build God's temple and to serve God. And of course, the book of Exodus suggests to us that the full service of God is only possible if people are free. Because you can't serve two masters. So only if you're fully free can you fully serve God. But over here, what we have before we build the temple, here already in the story of the Mon, we have references to, to the temple. And let me mention a couple of references that you have in this chapter, which presents the Mon as a kind of revelation and a kind of temple revelation. The first point is what Rashi had mentioned earlier in terms of I will test them or I will teach them. I will see if they follow my Torah or not. And if you move down, let's find this verse. This is, um, yeah, so we have over here, they were told, um, they were told when they're gathering the mon, they should collect a certain amount of the mon. Omer la gulgolet, take an omer. Now the word omer is of course a measure, but the word omer is a measure that we often find in conjunction with sacrifices in general. And we actually have an Omer sacrifice. The Omer sacrifice, and I wonder to what extent it's connected here to the Omer sacrifice, apart from being a temple measure of an Omer, which is a tent of an ephah. <laughs> but the Omer sacrifice in the Torah, when you come into the land, says the Torah, you are to bring the first harvesting, the first harvesting is brought to the priest and that harvesting allows you to eat from the new produce. The new produce is forbidden until you bring the Omer. Torah says in Until you bring the Omer, we don't have an Omer today, we do have Svirata Omer the counting of the Omer, it's what allows you to eat from the new produce. So here, it's interesting, there you have the idea that what allows me to eat from my new produce is recognizing that it comes from God. So over here you have the Omer, and the Omer of course is a temple measure, that's number one. And then we have the next idea that everybody can only take what they need. Person should not take more or less than what they need. Verse 18, when they, when they did meet it out, he that gathered much had nothing left over, and he that gathered a little had, no, had, had, had nothing missing. Everyone gathers according to what they need. The idea of lo hadifar marbeh vamamid lo hechsir, that everybody should have the same, that is to say what they need, that resonates with us in the book of Exodus. Because later on in the book of Exodus, 
when we are instructed to build the temple, we are told that everyone who donates to the temple, the half shekel, the wealthy one shouldn't give more and the poor one should not give less from the half shekel. In other words, there's something about the temple that's very democratic. Yes, there's a priestly caste that, that works there, that's true. But there's something about the temple as a central place of worship, which everybody is equally included. And over here, we have the same idea with this revelation. The revelation is to be given equally to the people, depending on the size of the household, but each person gets the same amount, which is the Omer. And finally, the third point is that they are told not to leave anything over. They're not allowed to leave it over. Where is that verse? Let's find that verse. The prohibition to leave things over. Where is that verse? No, where's that verse? Let's see. Chapter 16, verse number 19. Verse number 19. Yeah, there it is. Moses said to them, Ish mimenu ad boker. No one shall leave of it till the morning. You have to consume it in the day. You can't leave it over till the next morning. However, in verse 20, Velo shamu el Moshe. They disobeyed. There were some people that did leave it over. They wanted to save it for the next day, but it, but it, it spoiled. And Moshe was angry with them. What is the idea of not leaving it over till the morning? Where do we have such a concept? Not to leave it over. Temple sacrifices. Temple sacrifice in general is Pesach. And it's a very specific sacrifice is explicit in the book of Exodus. Carbon Pesach. Carbon Pesach is not to be left over. And the Carbon Pesach actually is very interesting in our context over here because the Carbon Pesach is a sacrifice that every house has to bring. And the Torah says in chapter 12 of Exodus, four chapters earlier, what about if you have a small number of people in the house? You're not allowed to leave it over, so what do you do? So the Torah says, if that be the case, join up with your next door neighbor. Join up with the next house to make sure that the entire sacrifice is consumed. Nothing is wasted. That's a general principle about food that's important, but even more so if it's sacred. Sacred things have to be guarded, mishmeret. We know we guard sacred things. We have a sacred Torah, something which is sacred. What is sacred in, in Jewish tradition? What is sacred is one of two things. What is sacred is that which has God's name. Tefillin are sacred. A Sefer Torah is sacred. A Tawit is not sacred. Throw in the garbage. We shouldn't do that. It's not so nice, but you can. There's no sacredness. There's no sanctity to a Tawit. Zero. There is sanctity to the tefillin because they have the letters and they have the parashiot. The Sefer Torah is holy and things related to the temple are holy. In our case, the synagogue. The parts of the synagogue, the ark has a certain sanctity to it. If it's not sacred in and of itself because it serves the sacred. 
So temple is holy and God's word is holy. So over here, if you think of the food as holy, don't have to be told not to throw it out because it's obvious. Would you throw a Torah out? Of course not. So therefore, to the best of our ability, my point is not about specific rules. The rules will flow from a deep understanding. What, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to understand is the way the Torah wants us to think about food as deriving from the story of the mind. If you see it as sacred, then you approach it a certain way. Of course, you don't throw it away. You don't waste it. It's sacred because it's coming from God. And that's how the Torah presents it over here. Don't leave it over. Don't leave it over. It doesn't mean as I grew up, they're starving in, in Africa or whatever. That's how I grew up, starving in Europe. And I never understood that exactly. But I knew my mother was saying, don't waste the food. I got that. But the point is, don't, don't leave it over because it's a sacrifice. That's what the Torah says. The Paschal sacrifice is above all a sacrifice. And therefore you can't leave it over. Yes, if you did leave it over, you have to burn it. That's what the Torah says. And it's true. As Charles said that elsewhere in the Torah, it broadens it to include other sacrifices as well, not just the Paschal sacrifice. So over here, what we see over here is that the way the Torah presents the man of not leaving it over, of, of having a, a specific portion, a portion in terms of how much you take and a portion in terms of when you eat it. There's something else about the sacrifices, which is interesting. Sacrifices are, they're called Kodshim. That's what they're called, Kodoshim. They were Kodesh, Kodesh, Kodoshim, and there's Kodshim Kawin. But they're holy. And what holiness entails in the Torah is specific time and specific place. So the man has these elements. The idea of it coming every day, yom yom, marks it as something sacred, or it's only a marker of the sacred. Specific time and specific place. So that's what the Torah says over here. In thinking about food, the Torah invites us to think about food as something a, coming from God. That's what Moshe is saying. It's not about me, says Moshe. You, you, you complain to the wrong person. Don't complain to me. It's nothing to do with me. It's God who provides the food. We could understand, actually, why people might not see God as providing food. It's what the Midrashim say, which is they thought of God as the great warrior. God drowns the Egyptians in the sea. The God who brings the plagues. The God, the, the warrior God. But the point of chapter 16 is that the same God who's, who's a warrior is the God who can, who, who can care for you. There's a caring God over here. And that's the God who's going to take care of you. At the same time, God is going to educate you. So there's an educational piece over here. And the educational piece is here, the focus is on the food as coming from God and what that entails. Let me stop here for a moment. How much time do we have left, Sarah? Um, we are at time now. I do know Marion has had her hand up for a while. Okay, so Marion, let Marion and I just want to close with the thought. We get, there's a lot more here, but I just, okay, Marion, please speak. No. Okay, now I didn't, I, I forgot what my question was, but I do want to just thank Rabbi Silver for such 
an enlightening talk, um, learning new things about things, you know, things at different aspects of things that we thought we knew about. And that's how it always is when, when I hear Rabbi Silber. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much for that. And I will let me just conclude with the following observation of the verses in, there were three main texts. I didn't get to text two and text three, which is the text in uh, Bamidbo, which is very interesting. It seems to be contradictory to the text in Shemot, but that's for another time. I did want to conclude with a text in, from the book of Devarim. Then Moshe speaks about the Mon. And Moshe speaks about the Mon in completely different language. This is found in chapter eight of Devarim in verse number uh, five. First, Moshe talks about the obligation to remember the journey. Remember the journey that God took you through the desert. is hardship. God gave you many hardships. To test you, that same word. To see if you would keep God's commandments or not. And God afflicted you and God starved you literally. God gave you the man, which you did not know, nor did your ancestors. To teach you, to tell you. The human being lives not only on bread, but rather by the word of God. Not which goes into your mouth, but comes out of God's mouth. And what's interesting is that here, you have the idea of education. This was an educational experience and we don't always learn from our successes. Sometimes we learn from difficulties. God put us in a difficult place, but the idea was God is instructor. Later on, it says explicitly, as a parent teaches a child. So God is giving you musr, God's discipline. The idea of the study of discipline, learning to be disciplined under difficult situations, that's how Moshe describes the man in the book of Devarim. So there's something very powerful about this, and it's a, interesting, it's different. Inui is a very, very powerful term in the Torah. It means abuse, it means suffering. It's a covenantal term in the Torah. But this is how the book of Devarim, this is the uh, reflection that the book of Devarim offers us about the hardships, about education, learning through difficulties, and hopefully learning how to apply it in all situations. I'll conclude one last thought I had about the word man. The Torah says in, in, in the book of Exodus, when this man, which was new to them, that's also difficult to encounter new things, new ideas, new experiences. And they said, what is this mahu? They said, ma, what is it? Therefore they called it man. Man is like, what is it? So it's called, what is it? That's what the book of Dvarim is. But I would uh, conclude with the following thought about the word man. Very often in the Torah, the Torah has one meaning of a word, but the Torah understands there's more than one meaning. Now the word man strikes me as related to a different word. It doesn't contradict the first point, but there's a word in the Torah that appears many times, which is mem nun hey mana. What is a mana in the Torah? 
a mana in the Torah is typically a sacrificial portion or a portion of something sacred. So I believe the Torah already in the very name man suggests to us something about the man. It's about the unknown. And that's part of the hardship to deal with the unknown, to deal with the uncertain. Unknown in the sense, this is new food. What is it? And will it be a tomorrow? Because you don't know if it's going to be a tomorrow. You can't store it, it spoils. But there's also the man, the mana, it's God's portion. So the Torah invites us to see food as God's portion. And God's portion, God provides for everybody. So, but the implication of that is that I have my portion from God. Maybe we should be particularly uh, aware of the fact that the many people in this world who don't have their portion, there is enough food in the world for everybody, probably several times over. The way we apportion the food, that's our responsibility. And I would say there's a lot of work on that, on that end. It's about trying to make sure everybody can uh, rest assured there'll be bread on the table the following day. And we thank you for participating and looking forward to other events. Patricia, our week of study continues this week on food, a very interesting program, and be many other interesting programs throughout the year. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Rabbi Silver. It was such a pleasure as always to learn with you for anyone that would Thank like you, to Rabbi. about our classes and this whole winter's mon on foods for next week. Um, please go to www.drisha.org slash classes. Thank you again and have a good rest of your weekend. Thank you.